Let's start with John Walsh. Won't Fianna Fáil deputy got up and asked De Valera, was it in order for Deputy Burke to be using a room for a purpose for which it wasn't intended? So De Valera's reply was, well, he said he didn't see anything particularly wrong with it, but to allay the fears of the deputy, he would make sure that there was a nurse on hand in relation to female patients. That's great. So we're living in more instant times, perhaps, you know, I mean, there'll be jokes about massage parlours perhaps now, you know. This remarkable story actually begins a couple of hundred miles west of Leinster House. There was a girl from Lissy Casey. I might be delaying you too long now with this interview. I've wanted to do this programme for a long time. Jim Burke is just out of hospital. You've just had an operation on your hip, is that right? That's right, yeah. Wear and tear, I'd say, in it. He reckons that if his father was still alive, Jim mightn't have had to go to the hospital. Possibly I wouldn't have to have it. No, possibly I wouldn't have to have it. It's only hypothetical anyway. Jim's father is over 50 years dead. But amazingly, that half-century hasn't eased Jim's anger at the way his father was treated by the people of Clare. He was foolish. Definitely I thought he was foolish. Gift or no gift, he had it and let it pay its way. Jim's father was Tom Burke. You know when someone dies and they say we'll never see his like again? Well, that was never more true than in the case of Tom Burke. You're outside Milltown Malbay in West Clare, in the townland of Dunchalla, outside the cottage where Tom Burke lived. On two sides there are conifers planted, and in front of you and to the side are wet fields full of rushes. You'd wonder how a family could live off this land in the early years of the last century. But things were different for the Burke family, and for Tom. He wasn't just a farmer. Tom had several jobs. Tom Burke was a born setter. And I must say, a very, very good bond sitter. PJ Burke, a retired local councillor in Milltown, Malbay. I'll give you an idea of what he was like. The assistant matron in the county hospital in Innes, she told me one time that her sister had a complaint, a pain in her back, and it seemed that they were fairly well off, and they took her over to London. They took her every place that you could think of. And no use. She came back and she was as bad as ever. So they lived in Galway. Uh, a neighbour came into him one day and he said, uh, Did you ever think of taking her to Thomas Burke in County Clare? I've heard the great name of him. And they brought, he brought his daughter to Thomas Burke. And uh, he arrived into the house. And Thomas Burke told him to take his daughter into the room. And he laid a rug down on the floor and he laid out his daughter on the floor. And he said, turn her her face down. And he ran his hand up along her back. And he said, turn her back now again. And he asked the brother of the girl to keep a hold of her shoulders. And he cut her leg, and he twisted it, and she roared. And whatever bone was out of place went back in. And he told her to get up on her fours. And she finally stood up. And he said, you can move now, he said, for a few minutes. And the next thing was, she walked out into the kitchen. And the father got weak when he saw her. The sweat started to pour out to him when he saw his daughter. She walked in her after. 
my grandfather fell off a horse and he, he coming home from Milton one time of a sort of fair and he broke his collarbone and Thomas Burke put it in for him. He came into the room and he put his knee down top of it and there was one crunch and it was in. <laughs> Were you proud of your dad? I was. To the extent now that he was such a public man. But I was not to the extent that he was more of a public man than a family man. For the sole reason if he was cutting hay and he'd leave the cutting of the hay and go off with someone and it might be three or four days before he'd get to, because some other one would be for him the following day or the following evening before he'd get to cut hay again. And that I did not agree with. And did your mother go crazy over that? that like if you were sitting down having a dinner, some people would come to the door and everything? Anyone that ever came to the door, if the table was on the floor, no one went out without tea no matter who they were. And she made as much tea, and I felt sorry for her, as it floated ship to America. There are various traditions associated with it. I mean, a very important one is that, you know, it was it just came from nowhere. You were, it was a gift you're born with. You didn't sit down and learn it and study it. Rory O'Hare, a teacher, he did some research into Tom Burke's life, having heard of him from his own grandfather. You were not allowed ever to charge anybody that you worked on. Did your dad make a lot of money out of it? No, he did not. And he never charged anyone. But they would bring maybe tea or sugar or something that way. But he always found, thought that it was a gift and why he get paid for it. Did Thomas ever run into trouble with the authorities? I, I presume some of the doctors didn't like him, but did he run into any trouble with authorities? Um, there's various stories about various bone setters from time to time, obviously, you know, if doctors felt they were encroaching on their territory. Thomas Burke did get into trouble on a level way beyond most bone setters or other people like that, it has to be said. Um, this was shortly before World War One. He treated a case, a man called John Sullivan. Uh, he was on his way into Milton Malbay in a trap with his wife and the horse bolted and he jumped from the trap to try and catch the horse and fell and the trap went over his leg. So they brought him to Thomas Burke and he said the leg was broken and he set it and he put bandages around it and then he poured pitch over it to, to harden and, and like a cast and uh, keep it in place. That was fine, but after a few days it didn't seem to be getting any better and uh, the rest of the family were a bit concerned at the colour the rest of the leg was going. And um, Burke initially said that was part of the healing process, but then they took the cast off. Uh, but um, the patient was already quite ill at that stage and he was brought to the doctor at the hospital but died. And it transpired essentially that A, the leg was never broken, but more importantly, the cast had been put on so tightly it had cut off circulation and gangrene had set in and that was what had actually killed the patient. So after an investigation, it was decided to charge him with manslaughter and he was brought and um, put on trial for that. And it's a fascinating court case. It was covered at length in the Clare Champion who set up a defence fund uh, for Thomas Burke. Uh, he had loads and loads of character witnesses, including the entire family of the dead man, appeared in court and spoke on his behalf. And the charge against him, it was interesting that the judge, who was obviously extremely hostile uh, to Thomas Burke, said that um, the issue was that Thomas Burke had practiced medicine on this man knowing that he did not have the requisite skill. 
there was no real issue over the man having died as a result of the treatment. That in itself wasn't a crime if somebody was acting, you know, in what they thought were somebody's best interest. But Burke basically was charged with, um, you know, he should have known that he didn't have the skill and therefore he was responsible for the death. And at this stage, this is when, in the 1930s? This, no, this would be, I think, around 1912, if I'm correct, just before World War One. But at this stage, you, you had to be a doctor by law. You, there was law governing practice of medicine. Oh, there would have been, absolutely, yes, at the time. But anyway, the judge gave a summing up, which was you know, basically instructing the jury to find him guilty. Uh, the jury, in about the shortest time possible, found him not guilty, to the judge's absolute fury. Uh, one of the funniest things I've read in a long time is the judge's address to the jury after they had given their verdict. It also includes a general damning of the entire population of County Clare as being so miserly that they would begrudge even a halfpenny to a doctor or a lawyer or a priest, which is why they ended up going to people like Burke. Uh, but as he said, you know, what could he do? The jury had spoken and that was that. And Burke was led off in triumph through the streets and never looked back after that. Do you have that, that thing? Because that's in the article. <coughs> do you need? Do you read it out? Or? Please, yeah. <coughs> Maybe it's at that up again. Just. Yeah. <coughs> In fact, one of the funniest parts of the whole thing is the judge's summing up uh, and he speaks to the jury. And uh, as he was sending them out to consider their verdict, he said, The farmers in Clare looked twice at a halfpenny before they would spend it, and they were slow to give money to a doctor or a lawyer or their priest. The misery of it was something extraordinary. There was a poor man dying, and according to the evidence, he even then refused to have a doctor. It was the going there and attending to the case of that kind without having the slightest skill or knowledge to fall back upon if an emergency arose that made the prisoner so culpably wrong. It did not seem to his lordship that it would be a great loss to humanity or country or anybody else if the prisoner were compelled to attend to his own business as a farmer and leave people of some skill to attend to such cases. So the jury listened to this, went out for three quarters of an hour, promptly found Burke not guilty, and the justice then did get his last word in. I, he would not say that the jury were wrong. He supposed they were right. But the judge told him not to do any more but one sitting. So he came down there were steps down from the courthouse. And he came down the steps. And there was a tinker. Mm-hmm. Yes, at the, the, the steps. And he was hooked. And he asked him would he settle him. And he sat in the steps and settled him. And came home and continued his bones sitting after. Well, he hadn't time for farming because he was taken up with the bones sitting. You know, people never understood. They were coming from all over Ireland to Thomas Burke. As if the bone setting wasn't enough, taking Tom away from the farm, he had another draw in his time, his passion for local politics. Oh, he was always a commissioned man, I'd say. He was a great... I guess, uh, Patriot. Christy Curtin. He's a community activist in Milltown, Malbay. And he felt that he had to serve the people. And for that reason, he put his name before the people. And he was a Tundon. And for, for many years, as a member of Clare County Council, I think close on 40, which was a record service. But we would have heard of Tom Burke, the bone setter, every parish where he, he would have been known in that sense as that type of character. I wouldn't have known him as a politician, obviously, at that stage. Kieran Sheedy, who's written a history of elections in Clare. But looking back at his record uh, and looking through it, he starts off as a county councillor after the Local Government Act in, in 1925. He starts off as a labour man. 
Then later on, at the next election, he's representing Fianna Fáil. And from there to the Farmers' Party. You see, the bone-setting didn't pay and the local politics didn't pay. It seemed there was only one way for Tom to go and get an income for his family. Somebody came up with a bright idea. Why don't you stand for election, you see? That's Doyle elections he's talking about. This is John Walsh. He's a Fine Gael party man who came across the story of Thomas Burke while he was doing a thesis. So he, he allowed his friends to put his name forward. 1937, the Farmers' Party in Clare are holding a selection convention and Thomas Burke's name is on the list of potential candidates. And uh, he's not even present in the hall. He's mending so many bones in another part of Venice. He's called into the convention hall. He defeats the other candidate handsomely. And on his way out, he he mends a broken ankle from one of the delegates. (laughs) And I canvas with his sons. And what, what was, when you were going around, what did you say that would, would he do? So there was no need of saying it because every place we went, he was known. And they knew what he was known for, bone sitting. So it made it very easy for us. We hadn't to, you know, say uh, Thomas Burke was so and so because they had known him so well. You know, he was known all over Ireland, you could say. But did nobody say to you, I'll have a bone setter for my bones, but I want a politician for the doll? No, 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 no. Nobody ever said that. No. No. And did they say, what are his policies or what will he do about... No, they never asked any questions. Clare, of course, is, is particularly famous for its music and song. And it seems to have been very, very common in the 30s and 40s for various candidates to have their own particular ballads and songs which they would, you know, play and recite and sing. Election time is coming while the honeybee is humming and the farmer responding to the call... For throughout the county Clare, all the farmers loudly swear Thomas Burke will return to the doll. And he's the man who feeds us all and should be most respected. For if the farmer went and strike, he'd stagger all creation. The graveyards then would soon be full of victims of starvation. And this limericks being written on the ballot papers actually seemed to be quite common. Um, there was one, for example, here's one for Tom Burke, the bone setter. When the missus fell over her sweater, he patched up her bones and silenced her groans, whether that was for worse or for better. He, he got elected. He got 6,500 votes. And he kept that seat for the next 14 years, from 1937 to 1951. But he wasn't an active participant in Doyle debates. He very rarely spoke in the Doyle or even went up to Dublin except to collect his paycheck. I think the only time he's noted as having voted in the Doyle was in 1948 when his sons wrote to him from America and said if he didn't go up and vote for Dev, there would be trouble. Very little he spoke in the Dáil for the sole reason. He'd leave home going to the Dáil and someone would know that he was going by train and they'd meet him at his station and get him off of the train to go somewhere to settle a bone. And that's where he missed the Dáil. The unwritten contract was clear. Tom Burke would cure Clare people for free and in return they would vote him a TD's salary every election. Jim, Tom's son, has plenty of stories of how the people of Clare failed to keep their side of the bargain. There was a girl from Lissy Casey and she was nursing or either training to be a nurse. No, in England, I don't know which. And she slipped and fell and hurt her back. They took her everywhere that where there was any specialist. But they could do nothing for her. And in the finish, she was confined to bed. But all Hebrew men's neighbours knew what he had done out before that. And they were at him. Why wouldn't he try Burke? 
So in the finish he did. So they brought him into the room to the girl. So when he examined her right, he settled the girl. And they asked him, would she ever again walk? She will, he said, walk. But he said, don't start out of that bed for 21 days. And when she gets up, make sure he said that you were with her. She'll be like a child learning to walk. And if he let her fall, he said she'll have the same problem again. So they said, all right. There was an election coming up in one three weeks' time. And because of what he had done, he wouldn't ask the vote. He thought he was entitled to it. And the, her father thought, if he went into the school and voted behind the screen, that his party wouldn't believe, but that he voted for him in come to what he had done. And he went into the school, voted open and didn't give him a vote at all. Didn't give him one, two, three, four or five or nothing. He wasn't afraid to lay into Clare people when then, uh, I think it was in the 44 election where he scraped into the last seat and promptly excoriated the people of Clare for their ingratitude. Because they had a big headline in the Clare Champion that his election address had gone around the world because the people in Clare were sending it to their brothers and sisters out in Boston and New York and what have you, you know. I mean, I'm involved in sales, but I never come across as good a sales pitch as he did, you know. Because what he did was he appealed first to the people's higher motives and then to their lower motives as it were, you know. All right. (laughs) He said, I had a tough enough time in 1944 to get elected to the fifth seat, though I had given the use of their limbs to people in every class of Clare. But now when I want their number one votes, I have to go down on my knees almost. I do not think that treatment is fair. It is very disappointing to find people so ungrateful as to forget what I have done for them when they were no use to themselves or to anybody else, only a mere bundle of scattered bones. And now he says, now when they can do their daily work, surely I should expect a simple stroke of a pencil. That is the only compensation I ask or get. Now, there are 13 candidates for four seats. But I hold I have done more lasting good for the people of Clare than all the others combined. I do not fear contradiction when I say I have done more for the people of Clare than the Gaelic Athletic Association, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Clown Talun, Clown and the Labour Party. It remains to be seen what gratitude and votes I will get at the forthcoming election. Whereupon they gave him one of his highest votes ever in the following election because they always felt doubtlessly properly ashamed of themselves that they had let Mr Burke down. Tom Burke, the bone setter, lost his Doyle seat to Paddy Hillary, the doctor, in September 1951. He died two months later. I don't think there's ever been a TD, possibly a political representative anywhere quite like him. He obviously had a great skill and a great heart. And he's remembered with great affection by a lot of people. He was wronged that he had done so much for every shade and creed that he was entitled to first preference where he should go above de Valera in preferences. I'm Ronan Kelly, and you've been listening to The Curious Ear. He always signed his election addresses. I still remain the same old bone setter, Thomas T. Burke.